I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. More than 50 years ago, the Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman said, rather famously, there is one and only one social responsibility of business. It is to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits, so long as it engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. That's it. So, Richard, you know you're you're speaking my language anytime you quote Milton Friedman. And for a lot of people, that statement really delineates the proper role for business in a free market system. Ah, but for others... That's another way of saying greed is good. Well, we'll be debating that. Corporate responsibility, opportunity, or crisis with Elizabeth Doty. Companies are on the receiving end of a lot of criticism, and they could respond in a defensive way. They could brush off things that maybe sound hysterical or, or partisan. And we felt they needed a place, a forum, and a place to get foresight for companies to dig into what's behind these complaints and what's behind this hyperpartisanship and conflict. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? As recently as 10 or 20 years ago, corporations could concentrate almost entirely on their core businesses, keeping customers, winning new ones, making a profit. Today, brands are often expected to also make a statement. Yeah, what does that mean, making a statement? What are the hazards for business? And with trust now so low in government and media, is this a moment that's actually an opportunity for corporations to help push back against the bitter divisions in society with a more constructive approach. We're going to dive in with Elizabeth Doty. She's the director of the Herb Institute Corporate Responsibility Task Force at the University of Michigan. Elizabeth joins us from Richmond, California. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Hi, Richard. Lovely to be here. Elizabeth, make the case for why it's important for businesses to take a stand and be socially relevant to their customers, to their employees. Great. Well, there are a couple of reasons. That the, the first one is how can business thrive or survive even? Uh, how can the economy grow in a society that is stuck in destructive conflict, in a society where people aren't thriving or have opportunity? We've seen that with COVID. 
We're seeing it with international conflict and supply chain effects. Business has an interest in the health of the systems that it depends on. And I would argue it has a responsibility to those. That's the premise of capitalism, um, all the way back to Milton Friedman, to honor the rules of the game and the society you depend on. We mentioned that famous quote from Milton Friedman about how a business's primary responsibility is to shareholders. Why is that different today in your view? What's, what are the limitations to that relatively straightforward view? It doesn't really get to some of the societal goals. As a society, we've had goals around things like homeownership or mobility and opportunity, access to education, investments in things that lift the whole, you know, the rising tide that lifts all boats, investments in intellectual property, things like that. Business has, has had an interest in those. But there are a couple of more fundamental reasons. And here's the question I would almost ask the two of you. What does it mean when business can influence the rules of the game? How does that change Milton Friedman's argument? When business can influence the rules of the game, and some rules of the game lift all boats, right? Some rules of the game align profit with the intention of capitalism and the benefit of societal welfare, or however you want to describe the overall value to society. Some rules of the game allow certain companies to externalize costs and risks on society where they can actually be prosperous and financially successful while society is paying the cost. And this is a, I mean, Milton Friedman himself talked about pollution as a problem. And when we have rules of the game that diverge, or as some analysts talk, talk now about decoupling financial performance from societal well-being, then you get the frustrations that we're seeing right now in society with wages not increasing. And finally, in the process of influencing the rules of the game, business is affecting how self-government and representative democracy are working. And the frustrations that are causing people to pull business into the fray are partly because those systems are not working very well. And so business has a responsibility and an interest, I think, in having those be trusted and trustworthy. Well, let's talk about how the landscape has changed in the past 10 or 20 years. Clearly, brands used to be able to concentrate more on their core business and not on social responsibility. They weren't expected to as much as they are today. What's different now? Well, in part, we have had several enormous challenges uh, and trends underway, right? We've had the advent of a whole new level of technology and access to data and digital data and privacy issues. We've had uh, automation and globalization that affect the job market. We've had shifts in education. We've had um, issues with aggregation of plastics, water issues, climate and carbon. So we're seeing tipping points in a lot of the larger social and environmental systems that I, I would argue are now the source of the conflict and uncertainty and frustration that is emerging as social issues. And you see the younger folks saying, these matter. We're going to be paying the price. Um, I can't see myself working for a company that's making these worse. And we're also living in a time when it seems like everything is, is more politicized. It makes it harder for companies to just stay above the fray, doesn't it? It does. And we have had conflict. We have fundamental differences in worldviews and uh, choices and how we weigh trade-offs and values. 
But those conflicts have become more and more destructive. I think we have been substituting advertising and social media and other forms of debate for actual human beings in a town hall. You're seeing that there is a politics industry that benefits from the conflict. And it's it's actually gotten so dysfunctional that it's more effective politically to blame the other side than to actually solve these really big systems issues that I mentioned. Um, and as spending increases, as uh, primaries play a bigger role, we end up with, with this really hyper-partisan difficulties. And it's become uh, what uh, mediators would call destructive conflict. It's not a real debate over you know, weighing different values. It's actually, I'm against you no matter what. Later in our conversation, uh, we'd really like to look at some ways that business can respond positively and perhaps help us get out of our doom loop. But but right now, uh, businesses are at times facing a minefield caught between different political factions being told by customers, by employees to choose a side. Let's walk through a few examples. Um, one is Disney with LGBTQ rights. Uh, another one uh, was Larry Fink of BlackRock on fossil fuel investments. Uh, tell us what happened. Well, with Disney, there was a, a concern among the employees about a bill in Florida not to speak about homosexual partnerships and relationships in the schools. And Disney missed the moment. They did not speak out about it. They did not uh, respond to that legislation. And this caused a real uproar amongst its LGBTQ population and allies to those. And it was contradictory to their very LGBTQ friendly brand, promises, commitments, (laughs) invitations to employees. And this was an integrity issue uh, for those employees. And they raised it for the company. After the fact, they weighed in and said, we really think this is wrong. Um, and they decried the legislation and said, we don't support this and it should not be put into practice. This offended Governor DeSantis and the legislature in Florida. And they said, you need to stay in your swim lane, uh, focus only on business, stay out of these social issues. We're going to revoke your tax exempt status for the property that you um, that you occupy in Florida. And then there's Larry Fink, who is the chairman and CEO of the world's biggest investment firm, BlackRock. He supports funding green technology. But in his annual letter to chief executives, he also said that pressure on corporations to get rid of their holdings in fossil fuels is a bad answer for fighting climate change. And there are better ways for companies to do it. Those comments led to a lot of blowback. With Larry Fink and uh, fossil fuel disinvestment, we're now seeing, and I think this is one of those things where if we went back to Milton Friedman's premises, we'd find common ground. But in the slogans in the news, the uh, fossil fuel industry and supporters in, in some states, I think in Texas in particular, they're saying, you know, you're picking and choosing winners and losers. If you're against fossil fuels, then you're being political. You're pandering to woke corporations, and this has no business in our state. And there's actually some effort now to remove businesses' ability to use judgment with the business judgment rule. Um, So some retaliatory action to try and prevent companies or investors, investment management, from getting off of fossil fuels back to the way free markets would work, right, with with, looking at the pollution that those cause. So I want to 
push back a little bit and raise a concern I've had for a long time that too often people in leadership positions in in businesses and really, frankly in other institutions they're kind of immersed in a standard left-wing analysis of a problem they're not necessarily aware that there are other ways to look at that issue take the last year there were some changes made in Georgia's voting legislation rolling back some of the changes they'd made in the middle of covid and there was an effort um, on, on the left to portray these as just naked voter suppression attempts to keep black people away from polls. But now Georgia just had a primary. The uh, attendance was up something like 200 percent and including among minorities. Access to the polls seems to have been extraordinarily straightforward. Nonetheless, Delta, you know, complained um, vigorously about the law. Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game out of Atlanta. Did those companies overreact to what was really more of a partisan framing of the issue? Right. So um, so I wouldn't say they overreacted, but I think the next step is to push for processes for deliberation rather than picking a position. And I, this is what I mean by companies need to go from trying to navigate this minefield to be consistent with themselves and not be the, the, you know, the, the target to actually investing in the systems for healthier debate and conflict. So that you actually go in and you say, what makes a trustworthy election system? And we're gonna fund a cross-partisan process to, to go in and do that. And we will set ground rules from experts that are cross-partisan, et cetera. So more of a process solution, going to interests, shared opportunities to deal with uh, facts rather than debate through headlines. We're speaking with Elizabeth Doty, who is director of the Herb Institute's Corporate Political Responsibility Task Force at the University of Michigan. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Let's talk about solutions, um, how businesses potentially can take a lose-lose situation that they've found themselves in, in many cases, to a win-win. How do businesses strengthen relationships among employees and customers and understand the skills that are needed to deal with some of these conflicts that they face? I would say the solutions involve companies, number one, moving to thinking about responsibility for their impacts on the larger systems that we depend on. And that's a whole different frame rather than trying to hunker down or defend myself. And as part of that, we need to think about what we're starting or reinforcing or investing in and also what we stop doing. So I would say if we think about systems that companies at a minimum can invest in healthier civic discourse, right? Like this is, this is something that's sorely lacking. And I think most of us actually distrust right now. We're not really sure it works, but it does. There's a group, uh, a study just uh, published called America in One Room on climate and energy and heavily represented from California and Texas. And people came to alignment on 68 out of 72 questions that they debated. But there are certain conditions that enable that. And this is where I think companies can help. And they can do it internally and externally. But start internally. And one of the conditions is that you set the ground rules and the foundation for real conversation. It's an academic concept called deliberative democracy. And what it is, is you create the conditions to deliberate together about difficult trade-offs. And then you don't just ask people what they like, dislike, or where they stand. You ask them to investigate the information you've pulled together together, and then weigh trade-offs in conversation where they spend time to, together. In the America in One Room example, people spent two weekends sitting with people they disagreed with, with a mix of voices. What we don't do often enough now, right? Because we've all moved into neighborhoods of people just like us. Or COVID, we stay home and we don't go to that bowling bowling league or whatever it is. So you recreate those conversations, but you put it in the context of having to weigh a trade-off, having to weigh nuanced points of view, and then jointly come out with, here's where we stand. To me, that is one of the foundational systems around civic discourse, and companies can help do that internally, and they can fund groups. There's a group called the Civic Health Project. There's a group called the Listen First Coalition. Allstate has invested in better arguments. And then there are things companies should stop doing. Companies need to look at how they're contributing to information or disinformation in the public debates. And it's very easy and tempting and short-term beneficial to skew those debates. So give us an example of where you feel that a corporation has helped skew a debate. Well, I think the most obvious one is Exxon's uh, contribution to research and then publicizing some uh, 3% of peer-reviewed science that raised questions or doubts about uh, projections for climate and temperature change and climate disruption versus the 97% that peer-reviewed science that supported projections of some volatility. And if they emphasize only the 3%, and they use the economic resources of the uh, corporation, that skews the public debate. That's not a fair assessment. And it's not in good faith of the public weighing its its uh, choices and difficulties. One example of where a business got behind a strong civic discourse effort and made an investment is 
better arguments. Uh, Allstate Insurance has helped fund that. Tell us a little bit more about the Better Arguments Project and, and what it does. What I know is that they clearly have employees, agents, and management from across the political spectrum with a wide variety of perspectives on current issues and issues related to their business. There was no way to, to sidestep the fact that we have some hard debates to have. So rather than picking a side and offending or, or um, overriding the voice of some, they recognized what I would call a third side, which is to raise the quality of the argument rather than pick a side in the argument. And so they came up with some ground rules. Allstate helped fund the group that did this and then helps build do the skill building within Allstate and also in communities that want to adopt this. The first ground rule I remember is take winning off the table. So this argument isn't about winning. It's about forming better understandings and better decisions responding to people with respect. But in the process of adopting these, people get more to the heart of an argument rather than the fear, alarm, triggering we all get when we feel that someone is just evil. (laughs) And you actually get to more of what philosophers would call an integrated solution where you've taken the best of the idea and its objections into something better. Do we have a climate in, in most corporations where both sides would feel free to, to, to raise their concerns? You know, I mean, a company like Allstate is one thing that is deeply rooted in communities all across the country, all political backgrounds. But you take a company like Disney or a, a, a lot of other institutions that are more coastal and more dominated by a prevailing more left-wing view, do you think the the potential critic of some of those views is going to speak up at at those meetings with their colleagues around? I I think it's a really important point. And I think it points to a sense of humility. And it actually reinforces my argument that companies' best strategy is to reinforce the civic processes that were meant to do this, right? Um, in, In civil society, rather than through company internal conversations. However, Um, I don't think people feel free to speak up. I've spent 30 years as an internal corporate consultant, and I don't think people feel free to speak up up about everything. I think it takes a lot of courage, and I think um, the environment is not necessarily without power dynamics, and those power dynamics can be tilted all different ways. What I would do is take the question below the debate, the question we can agree on, and deliberate on that. For example, what if you had a conversation about, can we have an open conversation here, (laughs) right? Have employees engage in, should we weigh in on the abortion debate? Do we have enough space here to talk openly about this? And if not, what else could we do in good conscience? So you take the open question rather than presuming there's the openness and and neutrality or level playing field. Let's talk about what the individual can do in this setting. We had a fascinating podcast several years ago now about the scandal at VW when they began skirting the air pollution rules around their some of their diesel engines in the U.S. and, and in other places. And, you know, if you are in an organization that is going down a certain path 
if you're the employee, if you're part of this institution and you think something's going the wrong way, but you're just one person, what do you tell people in those situations? How does a corporation encourage people to do the right thing or to speak up? With the, the VW example, you have this responding to popular pressure uh, for uh, lower emission vehicles um, and then this gaming. And that's actually where my, my work was 30 years ago. I wrote a book called The Compromise Trap. Uh, what most people don't realize is that when you make those compromises, it's usually because you don't feel strong enough to push back as an employee, as an individual. And I interviewed people about those moments you just described, Jim. People in uh, health food companies that see production processes that are going to create health risks. You know, watching these, you know, uh, industrial situations where the health and safety folks are not speaking to the production folks and you just know it's going to be a catastrophe. And the problem is if you don't speak up, here's the negative, it will get worse. You will feel less capable and strong of speaking up the next time. And you've set a precedent that will have you cause yourself to question whether to speak up the next time. So building that muscle for speaking up, but doing it effectively is critical, even in the best companies. So how do employees get out of the compromise trap and effectively speak up or, or even be whistleblowers when they see something at work that they find disturbing or uh, are unethical? Here's the key to doing it positively. One is they say that if three people bring something forward, not two, not one, but if three bring it forward, it actually is taken more seriously. Otherwise, it's a renegade or a conspiracy. <laughs> so if you want to, if you feel you need to speak up, don't do it on your own as an employee. Find a, at least a couple of other people, right? Yeah, and you and you raise the question. Raise the question of, to me, like one person said, this looks material, but we're not reporting it. What am I missing? So raise the question, invite them into it with you from a values-driven lens. And then it's a positive no, like, you know, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to sign off in this report. And then you say it positively. Tell me what I'm missing. So you don't create the antagonism because bringing up ethics issues is so psychologically triggering to any of us. People go into defensive modes and then you are the, the whistleblower is the one that gets ostracized. Clearly, businesses have a role to play in matters of ethics and bringing people together uh, during these divided times. Tell us more about the work that you do at the Corporate Political Responsibility Task Force. Companies are on the receiving end of a lot of criticism, and they could respond in a defensive way. They could brush off things that maybe sound hysterical or, or partisan. And we felt they needed a place, a forum, and a place to get foresight for companies to dig into what's behind these complaints and what's behind this hyperpartisanship and conflict, and then to develop a framework for responding responsibly and a framework that blends the Milton Friedman shareholder value fundamentals and perspective with more modern concerns about stakeholders and how the economy could be distorted. And so, and it's been fantastic. We've been meeting for eight months. We've had all kinds of guests come in from across the political spectrum like this. Um, and now we are on the brink of sharing a set, the herb principles for corporate political responsibility. And just a note here, we have a link to the work of your 
task force and how people can get involved on our website, which is howdowefixit.me. Before we go, a final question, Elizabeth. Are you hopeful that what now seems to be something of a lose-lose proposition for businesses when they speak out on political and social matters might be turned into a win-win? I think we're in the balance, and I'm hopeful that the prospect of catastrophe has us recognize our shared interests in a foundation for business to invest for the future. Let's get out of fighting each other and the alarm we have over the other side's latest tweet and get to where we could invest for the future. So I'm hopeful that this is a really powerful pathway and that business leaders are increasingly going to recognize it and recognize their common cause with each other. But it's, we're not out of the woods. This could really go badly. <laughs> so, um, so I encourage people to take action. Thank you, Elizabeth Doty. Thank you both. Elizabeth Doty, next, a recommendation. Jim, over to you. I think this one's audio today. You know, I love music and I love podcasts. And I've got a new music podcast to recommend. It's called Walking the Floor. And it's by a, a guy named Chris Shiflet, who some people might know is the guitarist for the Foo Fighters, the venerable a rock band that is one of those bands that speaks across multiple generations and still going strong after nearly 30 years. What's so cool about this podcast is, first of all, he's just a great interviewer, great energy, and he brings in all these different musical artists and talks to them about their careers, what got them inspired, uh, and they're great conversations. He talks to artists like Steve Earle, Sheryl Crow, a lot of people in that sort of alternative Americana genre, like uh, Lucinda Williams. I got a question to ask, um, and that is, where do you listen to podcasts? I know you have a sizable yard. Is it when you're out there or when you're barbecuing? Or so, yeah, what? all of the above. We cut the cord with our cable a few months ago. So if I was making dinner or something, I would be toggling between the various cable news shows. And it's just so exhausting and, and not you don't really learn that much. So we don't have that anymore. And so I'll just put on, uh, put on a podcast while I'm you know, making dinner or I'm cleaning the kitchen or I'm doing chores around the house, out gardening. I got a set of, of headphones you know, I'll, while I'm mowing the lawn. And it, and sometimes on long trips, it's, you know, it's also good. I've got to say, you sound like the ideal podcast listener, uh, listening to them often and almost anywhere. The podcast you recommended is Walking the Floor. Next, our conversation about the interview with Elizabeth Doty. Now, Jim, I just heard you cough. Um, <laughs> Sorry, about and that. Uh, you're a little sniffly. I, I gather you've you've gone and caught COVID, right? Right. Yes. I hope I didn't sound <laughs> too uh, low energy today. Yeah, uh, my wife and I were at an Audubon conference over the weekend. When we got back, we got a report that someone there had later come down with with COVID. Sure enough, Monday night, I started getting a case of the sniffles. But, you know, I'm vaccinated, boosted. I'm, um, 
I, it, for, for me, it's basically like an annoying cold. I, I'm not cons- particularly concerned. And I'm now like three or four days into it and, and I think starting to feel a little better. So it, it's, a, it's a drag, but it's not a big deal. Well, may it pass quickly. Yeah. And speaking of quick, let's do a, a, a quick comment on Elizabeth Doty's uh, interview. I liked how she tried to get beyond the controversies that some businesses find themselves locked in right now to constructive uh, things that that businesses with a variety of employees of different backgrounds and political persuasions can actually do to move things forward rather than get uh, caught up in a kind of political quagmire. Yeah, I think the temptation to get caught up in a quagmire is really there. In a lot of these cases, a small group of employees raise a ruckus over an issue. And, and as, as you can imagine, I think they they often raise the issue in its most distorted and partisan form. Uh, and the n- new communication channels within businesses actually kind of encourage this, you know, Slack channels and other things. I think working from home encourages this. People can be more vociferous, more angry um, when they're putting comments on some chain of messages than they necessarily would be if they were literally talking to someone face to face, you know, around the coffee maker in the office. But she made another point that I think is really important that we didn't really get to in depth in the podcast, but it's it's critical. It's the question of how are businesses unfairly using the political process to kind of tilt the playing field? You know, things aren't always fair. Big companies do have a lot of power. And if there's an area where we should be looking to make some reforms, I think it might be there. Let's look at how companies are using and abusing their political power. Well, you're not feeling very well, so I'm not going to push back against that. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's leave it at that, Jim. Uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us. It's, it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits, especially in the bridging space. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Thanks. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.